And one story that always kind of captures my imagination streets lost culture. And you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Over the last half century, as many nations around our region have gained independence from colonial regimes, they've had to ask themselves some really big questions. For example, what is this country? What makes this nation our nation? And what symbols are going to define us? And also, who's going to make those decisions? In our episode today, we have two stories about the complicated paths two different countries have taken to arrive at these kinds of decisions. And they take place in different time periods. In part one, Iraq grapples with the idea of changing its flag after the American invasion and the fall of Saddam Hussein. And then in part two, the UAE finds this crazy, inventive way to try and make money for its newly found statehood. It's the strangest thing, and you'll never guess it, so you have to listen. I'm Dana Balutz, and this is Curting Cultures, stories from the Middle East and North Africa, and the spaces in between. Of the 22 Arab countries, most of them use some variation of the same four colors in their flags. Red, white, black, and green. The exceptions are places like Somalia, Comoros, Djibouti, and Qatar. Some countries use all four, Palestine, the UAE. Some just use two, like Saudi Arabia or Bahrain or Lebanon. People in the vexillology world, which is a super funny word, but it means the study of flags, call this the flag family, when a group of countries' flags look very similar. It's not unusual. You have flag families in Africa. There's the Scandinavian countries, where many of the flags have a cross on them. But the origin story around the pan-Arab flag, that is the earliest version of the green, black, red, and white flag, used during the Arab revolt against the Ottoman Empire in around 1916, is a little blurred. Some people say it's a mashup of several flags used by Arab national clubs. Some people say it was Mark Sykes, the British official, who introduced the first flag to use those colors. But whatever the reason, the colors have stuck around. They're the colors under which wars are fought, treaties are signed. And because they're so ubiquitous now, we wondered if any country had, you know, ever tried to change them. And it turns out that in Iraq, they almost did. After the American invasion of Iraq and after Saddam Hussein was overthrown, the American transitory government, in collaboration with the Iraqi interim government, pitched this idea. Let's introduce a new flag, something totally different to any other Arab country. It was white, with blue and yellow stripes and a crescent moon in the middle. For Americans, it was supposed to represent a new era in Iraq's history. But for Iraqis, it was quite the opposite. Here was this foreign invading power trying to change something that was at the core of the country's DNA, its flag. It was a tough sell. Producer Alex Atak takes the story from here. For any flag designer, there's a universally accepted set of rules to follow. They're called the five principles of flag design. Number one, keep it simple. Number two, Use meaningful symbolism. Number three, use two or three basic colors. Number four, no lettering or seals. Number five, be distinctive or be related. And if you follow those rules, you should, in theory, end up with a good flag. Break the rules and you'll get a bad flag. 
It's a very good question, very simple question, but very good question as well. What are the elements that make a good flag design? I think first is recognizability. It has to be recognizable. It has to stand out. This is Tarek Atrisi. He's a Lebanese Dutch designer who was asked to design an international flag of peace, that's what they called it, as part of a Dutch design exhibition in 2015. So when I asked Tarek about uh, good flags and bad flags, he gave me a couple of examples. The Dutch flag, bad flag. Not awful, but not great. For example, when he's trying to select it from a grid of flag emojis, he often can't find it right away. It's very confusing. It can be confused with many flags. When I need to select the Dutch flag, I often select the Luxembourg flag, or you might select the Russian flag by mistake. So it's not very recognizable. And not being very recognizable is a problem because you want your country's flag to stand out against all of the others. Like, for example, the Lebanese flag. Looking at the Lebanese flag, I think it has much more recognizability. I think the Lebanese flag sort of fall in the category of the Canada flag as well, because they use a national tree, which is the cedar tree. It's almost like the cedar of the flag is almost like Fairuz, actually. It's the only thing that's, that's, that has been <laughs> neutral to the Lebanese, the only thing. Beyond just looking good, flags are also supposed to give us a sense of belonging, some kind of national icon that a whole country can get behind. And I think coming to a flag design that makes people feel something, but that also looks good and is inclusive of history and religious and ethnic groups, that's the hardest part. So it's a very simple design piece that has uh, to reflect through its design a very complicated uh, story behind it. Uh, so actually, it's extremely challenging. It's also the type of projects that doesn't happen often. Most countries have their flag established historically since a very long time. There was one flag expert I spoke to uh, who told me that he thinks of flags as like the shorthand of history, that they're kind of a way of studying what a country was trying to say about itself through various periods of its history. And so quick history of the flag we're talking about today, the Iraqi flag... The first version uh, that had the green and red and white and black was brought in in 1921 under British Mandate Iraq. Then it was changed to uh, the three horizontal stripes that we see today in 1963. The storied city of Baghdad, capital of Iraq, has been the scene once more of bloody revolt that has seated a new government. When the Ba'ath Party came into power, they also added the three stars to represent Syria, Egypt and Iraq, uh, three countries that they hoped would come together in a union one day. And since then, uh, there have been like various small tweaks and changes to the design, but they've all used these same pan-Arab colors. And to talk about what they represent, we spoke to the Iraqi artist Dima Yassin, uh, who told us about a poem on the Martyrs Memorial in Baghdad um, that's about the colors of the flag. So, bidun sana'iruna, sudun waqa'iruna, khudrun marabiruna, humrun mawadina. So it says, uh, white are our doings, black are our battles, green are our kind of valleys, and uh, red are our pasts. It's a 14th century poem by an Arab poet called Safi al-Din al-Hili, which was tied symbolically to the four colors of the pan-Arab flag during the Arab revolt uh, against the Ottoman Empire in 1916. And they've been used on the Iraqi flag since then in various ways. Um, and there have been changes over the years, like I said, but maybe the most significant change to the flag was in 1991 when Saddam Hussein was president. So he decided to write Allahu Akbar, which is God is great, in the, like between the stars with his own hands. Talk about narcissism, but 
it's like it's <laughs> so he wrote with his own like handwriting he wrote Allahu Akbar in the middle this was right before the beginning of the first Gulf War we will continue the struggle confident that we will eventually win victory the mother of battle um, in a famous speech around the same time Saddam Hussein said quote we in Iraq uh, will be the faithful and obedient servants of God struggling for his sake to raise the banner of truth and justice. The banner of God is great. The Iraqi president's 35-minute address to the nation warned his people that if the Allies reject Moscow's proposals, the mother of battles would automatically follow. His broadcast spoke of Iraq's stand against... I'm always bothered by the words. It's not because of the religious connotation in it. It's because of the history of it. Like, he wrote them. Like Saddam wrote them actually with his own. He decided to put his own signature on that flag. Uh, he's kind of like, I own you, you know what I mean? So it bothers me when I look at those words on it, I, it just really bothers me. And then in 2003, my fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq. To free its people. When the American-led governing council had power in Iraq... The goals of a liberated Iraq from a point of view about what type of government the United States seeks is a democracy, a country that welcomes different religions, that has freedom of speech, freedom to, to worship, uh, free press. Uh, we want to make certain that elements of the previous Ba'athist regime are not able to return... Saddam Hussein's handwriting on the flag and all of its connotations with the old Ba'athist regime, it bothered them too. So in 2004, they announced a plan for a redesign. The removal of Saddam Hussein's memory is a very, very active portion of the U.S. occupation in 2003 and 2004, and really and beyond. This is John Andrews. Uh, he's an academic and has written about the history of the Iraqi flag. But in 2004, uh, when the new flag was proposed, he was there in Iraq uh, as an infantryman with the American military. And he told us a bit about what led up to the decision uh, for the US-led Iraqi governing council to petition for this flag change. If we're changing all these other things, and we are indeed debathifying the country, why don't we have a clean break and start over and we'll have a new flag? on top of it. Why not? You know, while we're, while we're changing everything, we, why don't we change that too? So they set up this competition where designers could basically pitch their new ideas for the flag. They kind of ran a contest at the time and they, there, was lots, there were lots of designs for the flag. And the design that got chosen was designed by the famous Iraqi architect, Rifat Shadirji. And out of Iraq this morning, a new flag. Here's the flag that was flown during Hussein's rule. And next to that, you can see the Iraqi flag proposed by the U.S.-appointed Iraqi Governing Council. And as Dana described at the beginning, it's totally different from any of the other previous uh, Iraqi flags. It's white um, with two lines to represent the two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, um, and a yellow line to represent the Kurdish people, and then above that, a crescent to represent Islam. But when the design was published in an Iraqi newspaper, the backlash was pretty much immediate. Imagine waking up one morning to find a foreign-backed, unelected government has just eliminated the Stars and Stripes. That's what many Iraqis feel happened today. I think the backlash comes from the idea that we got attached to these four colors. And there is a lot of history in it. 
Sabak Abdul Jalil says the new flag's ugly. But more important, he says it doesn't touch his heart like the old one. Yeah, of course, it's a big mistake. You know, all Iraqi just used, just used for the previous Iraqi flag. It, it represents Iraq. So it's kind of like I think we just grew very attached to the colors. I think that's that's why we're not convinced when we look at the at, like that can't be Iraq. No, this is not. <laughs> Doesn't the governing council have anything better to do with its time? Interjects 64-year-old Hamza Abed. Almost all young men, you know, with no jobs, just sitting home. So that's the most important thing, not the Iraq flag. Go ahead. No money, no job. Since the Americans occupied this country. Traffic cop Sergeant Sitar Jabbar. Do you think there's also something in the the fact that the the flag change was at least in part influenced by the Americans? I do. I do. I, I would. I would say that. I mean, it's an erasure of. of this is John Andrews again. I think it would be very easy to point to that and say Americans are trying to change everything about us, in, in, including our sacred symbols. Mm. Is that what you felt to be true? At the time or, pre- or presently? Uh, well, if it's a different answer, then both, I guess. I think looking back on it, where I am now, I do, th- I do think it is something of an overreach by American influence to just do one thing too many in Iraq. The competition and Refrat Shadurji's flag idea, they were both scrapped after the backlash. He passed away last year, and we reached out to his foundation to speak to us for the story, but they weren't available in the end. Instead of his flag, they brought in one that was quite similar still to the 1991 version with the takbir, uh, Allahu Akbar, except they removed Saddam Hussein's handwriting and replaced it with a Kufic script, which is an angular Arabic script from ancient Iraq. This is from a video uh, of the moment they raised the new flag over the Iraqi embassy in Washington, Um, D.C. This is more than a historic moment. I don't have enough words to describe our happiness, our joy at the fact that Iraq has regained its sovereignty. And then in 2008, Uh, the three stars which had become associated with the Ba'ath Party and Saddam Hussein, they were taken off the flag too. These new flag designs pass with, as best I can tell, very little disagreement. The flag today is still the same as the one in 2008, three horizontal stripes, red, white and black, with the takbir and kufic script in the middle. It actually breaks from one of the cardinal rules of good flag design that I talked about at the beginning, uh, in that it's got lettering on it. But I think if we've taken anything from this story is that those rules can be broken and they're almost designed to be broken. The more important question is, what does a flag actually mean to the people of the country? And obviously with the Iraqi flag, there are a lot of different answers to that. We all have uh, different feelings about what our national flags mean and what they should represent. But for Dima, uh, something changed recently when she was back in Baghdad in 2019 during the huge anti-government protests where the flag was everywhere. You see it as a beautiful thing. I mean, the flag itself, especially when it's like big and everybody's like carrying it and people are kind of like, it's, it's very, very, it's very, very hard to explain, but it's, it's really, um, it's very emotional. In the newsreel from these protests, you see the flag everywhere. It's draped around a woman's shoulders as she treats a wounded protester in the back of an ambulance. In one, a crowd carries a flag so big that it takes like 30 people to hold it up. In some of the shots from above, the crowd is just a sea of red, white and black. I mean, those kids were carrying it 
and they wouldn't let it fall on the on the ground and they would die for that it's just crazy like if they would die just to carry that flag they were not even fighting a lot of people died this way uh, they were shot but if you talk about if it represents like design wise if it represents iraq i don't think so no i don't think so so this this is, might be a big question but like if you had the chance yeah. to redesign the flag and you can do whatever you want, what are the things that you feel need to, like you would want to represent? How would you go about it? How drastically would you change it? Oh, yes, <laughs> it is a big question. But, but I would love to, to represent the diversity because Iraq is just, it's not one thing. It's just so many things all together. So I would love to represent that. Because this is, we're talking about the cradle of civilization. We're talking about the Sumerians and the Assyrians. And it's, it's, a, it's a place that has a history, a 5,000 years worth of history, if not even more. So I'll put some kind of aspect in that. Actually, there was a version in, in, the, in the protest that people were carrying. Uh, so instead of Allahu Akbar, they put a word um, that was written in um, in cuneiform, the Sumerian language. The, the word was amargi, which means uh, liberty. It symbolizes something, that weight of history that the country is carrying. So it's really, it has this really, really deep meaning because we all carry that, that civilization kind of weight. After the break, the story of how, in the 1960s, uh, in the Trucial States before the UAE, an American con man made a fortune by selling the country's stamps. For our next story today, we're going to take you from Iraq to the UAE to tell you about how a shady American entrepreneur found a way to exploit the country's newfound statehood in this really weird way that I had never heard of before and how the UAE used it to its advantage. Here's Alex again. When I first met Amar Shams to interview him about his stamp collection, he showed up with a printed poster of some of his favorite stamps rolled up in a tube and tucked under his arm. Straight away, he unfolded it onto the table and started telling me about some of them. So, National Day 1977, we had a set of three stamps commemorating National Day, but they printed the Arabic date in the English style. Oh. They wrote the date on the left, uh-huh. the month in the middle, and the year on the right. Which in Arabic He's retired from work now, but um, Amar's had a lot of jobs in his lifetime. Uh, worked in oil and gas, worked in entertainment, worked in film industry, and was a banker. Okay. Worked for the federal government, worked for local government. He also happened to have been uh, a governor at the school that I went to in Dubai. If it was a good idea at the time, I tried it. Okay, wow, so you've done like... Now he's a full-time student working on a PhD in Islamic law in London. But he grew up in the UAE in the 60s. Back then, it was called the Trucial States, in a neighbourhood called Dira. What, what was life like in the 60s in Dubai, in Dira? Fun. <laughs> Basically, all us kids spent... Spent the whole afternoon running around barefoot, uh, chasing footballs and uh, sand pitches everywhere. Uh, very few cars, very few people. So it was, it was a smaller place. And he told me that if you were a kid growing up uh, around this time, 
your options for things to do were pretty limited. No, there wasn't much except running around the neighborhood playing football. The first cinema didn't open in Dubai until the late 1960s, and to read books or comics from abroad, you'd have to make the trip to the British Council Library on the other side of the creek from Dera. Yeah, the latest comics would come in once a week to the British Council, we'd go there to read them. And so at some point, he got into philately, or stamp collecting. So how, how did you get into philately? What's your kind of earliest memories of that? Earliest memories will go back probably to the 1960s. Um, Dad somehow convinced me that stamp collecting was a good idea. Um, and he worked for British Petroleum at the time in Dubai. This is when the Trucial States were still under protectorate control by the British. And every day he'd come back from the office, whatever letters had come into BP from different parts of the world. The, I, th- I think the male boy who worked in the office knew to tear off all the stamps and give them to my father who'd bring them home. Oh, wow, okay. And then it was literally, uh, you, you, you take the piece of the envelope that the stamps were on, put them in warm water until the stamp sort of comes off. Uh-huh. And then as the stamps come off uh, the envelope, you put them on a towel to dry and then sort them and then put them in albums. And- so his dad would arrive home from work uh, with whatever new stamps he collected that day. And Amar would look through them and file them away into one of his stamp albums. And then over time, it just became you know, a virtual, virtually an obsession, I guess. Uh, I think as a child, it was just... There was color, there was um, variety, and there was structure. It it, it helped me narrow down countries. I I learned about places that I'd never been to. Mm -hmm. Um, It was was a window into or out of Dubai and into the rest of the world. Mm. And I still remember my first ever holiday to London was summer of 1977. I was 13, uh, yeah, 13 years old, I guess. Dad wanted us to see you know, London and go to, you know, whether it's the planetarium or the Natural History Museum or uh, you know, do something useful with my time. I wanted to go to Stanley Gibbons. <laughs> Stanley Gibbons is a famous stamp dealer in central London, still there today. All of my savings I'd, 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 I'd collected, I brought over with me um, with one objective in mind, which was to buy a penny black. Okay. I'm pretending that I know what a penny black is here, uh, but I didn't. I had to ask him later. It's basically the first stamp ever issued anywhere in the world. So 1840, issued in the UK, has a picture of Queen Victoria's head on it. And for stamp collectors, it's it's basically, you know, number one of one in the world. The first stamp ever. So 1977, on this trip to London, Amar bought a penny black and a two penny blue, which was the second stamp to ever exist. Um, I paid £120 for them in 1977. Uh, In today's money, that's like £750. Yes, which for a 13-year-old constituted my life savings. But kept them with pride. I still have the tappany blue. And part of the reason this stamp is worth so much money is because it's rare. And in stamp collecting, rarity is pretty much prized above anything else. And rare can mean one of a few things. Either it was a stamp that there just weren't very many of them produced, uh, or it can be that there was some kind of mistake on it, like a misprint. For stamp collectors, that's what you look for. Uh You look for uh, a mistake that gets a stamp withdrawn and makes it very, very rare. Okay. There is a US stamp um, that was, I'm trying to remember when it was. It was sometime, I think, late 1930, 20th century, with a biplane on it. And the plane is upside down. Right. And I think it's printed just it's the wrong printed way. The wrong way. Okay. The, the, everything else, you know, it says US postage on it, the number, the 20 cents or whatever cents it is. Yeah. Everything's perfectly okay. 
But the plane's upside down. Right. In the stamp collecting world, uh, that stamp is called an inverted Jenny. And I think only six of those stamps oh my gosh. ever went out into the real world. So they're just the yeah, All the others were destroyed, but six of them exist. Wow. A couple of years ago, one of them was bought by an anonymous buyer at an auction in New York for just under $1.6 million. They're worth absolutely millions of dollars to collectors because, once again, rarity has value. So in the 1960s, uh, people from outside the stamp collecting world started to notice this too, that rarity has value. And one of these people was this guy called Finbar Kenny. He was a businessman. And he wanted to tap into the stamp collecting all over the world. He was an American, worked in the stamp section at Macy's department store, and he saw an opportunity to make money. And the only way he could tap into it was to basically produce his own stamps, but he couldn't as an individual citizen, so he needed to find a a legal entity, uh, a country or an emirate or whatever it might be, that that would allow him to print stamps. At the beginning of the 60s, uh, the Trucial States were using their own stamps for postage. Before that, they'd use British stamps. But this guy, Finn Barkenny, um, who, by the way, one academic I spoke to said that he was basically just a crook, he approached some leaders in the Trucial States with a proposal. He came to the small, small emirates uh, and he would pay them a annual stipend mm-hmm. for the right to publish stamps in their name. Um, and keep in mind, in the early 60s, uh, this is pre-oil, we were, I mean, literally hand-to-mouth existence in the Gulf. Um, my generation were born in, in mud houses, and we, we, you know, we, we remember days before power and before mm-hmm. electricity and whatnot. So uh, pre, pre-oil and mm-hmm. pre-money, um, our rulers would tap into any resource that would allow them to have an income. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they could then use for, for you know, practical purposes, you know, mm-hmm. running hospitals and schools and building roads and whatnot. So they individually, all Emirates, I think, with the exception of Abu Dhabi, entered into an agreement with this American chap and started and allowed him to print stamps. So the stamps would be printed. They'd be sold without us ever seeing them. Hmm. because they had nothing to do with us, Hmm. but they would carry the name of the individual Emirates. It's not even clear if he ever actually visited the Trucial States. He probably didn't. But he was kind of like a stamp market stock trader. He'd keep an eye on trends in the US market, uh, print whatever people were interested in buying as Trucial State stamps, and sell them to stamp collectors in the US. Let's say he knew that people were collecting stamps with John Kennedy's picture on them. So because of that, suddenly there'd be a definitive sta- uh, so, so a, a, a set of stamps from Ajman and from Umulgawin and from Fujairah and from Ras Khaimah, all with John Kennedy's face on them, hmm. that he would then sell to collectors all over the world. Because they were in demand, they were in, demand. in the collector's market. Exactly. And if trends were uh, Rubens paintings, you know, Sharjah would issue a set of Rubens paintings. If the, the, the trend was for... Uh, and anything from triangular stamps, round stamps, stamps with a hole in the middle, uh, whatever he thought he could sell. I read he, things, like Alice in Wonderland, rockets, like you skis, name it, we, ski yeah. slopes. But like, it had nothing to do with the country. The individual emirates would take a percentage of the profits, but through this scheme, I think it's fair to say that Finn Barkenny was making a killing. And there's actually a name for all of this. It's called stamp pandering. I spoke to the guy who coined the phrase. So I call it stamp pandering because the stamps are designed not for local residents, not 
for local residents who uh, want to send a letter or a package. They're designed for collectors. This is uh, Joel Slemrod. He's a professor of economics at the University of Michigan in the United States. His speciality is taxation and tax avoidance, but he's also a stamp collector. Uh, I've been a stamp collector for, oh, probably 60, 65 years. And I was always waiting for a chance to uh, find the intersection between those two interests of mine. He started studying this thing he called stamp pandering in 2008 when he wrote a paper about it. One of the things I look at is I try to understand what about a country makes stamp pandering attractive. And some of the things are um, not particularly surprising that this is more attractive to poorer countries. They find it difficult to raise money um, in other ways. He studied a bunch of countries that have acted as uh, stamp panderers over the years. And um, Disney characters are very, very prominent. Um, the country of Chad issued stamps with Marilyn Monroe. I doubt Elvis visited uh, Burkina Faso, but um, stamp agent that was producing their stamps thought it would sell. Uh, Chechnya had stamps with Groucho Marx on it. Mongolia issued stamps with the Three Stooges. Montserrat issued stamps with uh, Jerry Garcia, the um, Grateful Dead's guitarist. So I can't explain oh why. That's really obscure. Yeah, I can't explain the fascination with American culture, but it does exist. And you see this on Finbar Kenny's Trucial State Stamps from the 60s as well. I ordered a bunch of them on eBay for like £2, including postage. There's a Picasso painting uh, printed as a Fujera stamp. There's another with Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin uh, planting the American flag on the moon. At the time, a New York stamp dealer told Aramco magazine that it's almost impossible to keep up with Trucial State Stamps because there are just so many varieties. Joel told me that... Ajman alone printed nearly 1,500 different stamp designs in the mid 60s. So I read, I read that the uh, well, the the Emirates. Uh, I think Ajman Russell Hamer, they made profits of about seventy thousand pounds in 1960s money, which is I just ran it through a uh, inflation calculator, and that's about 1.4 million in today's money. Um, does that sound like? Is that possible that they would have raised that much money in the 60s from, from stamps? Yeah, absolutely is possible. Wow. A lot of stamp collectors in the world. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I think that's absolutely possible. It's hard to come across any like definitive figure here, but one source I found said that at its most profitable in 1966, the Emirate of Ajman made most of its revenue from stamps. They put it at £70,000 a year in the mid-60s. It's hard to imagine today... Uh, especially somewhere in the UAE, which yes. is so developed over the last yes, 40 years. Yes, yes. But it's hard to imagine some uh, state being able to run, like you said, hospitals, roads, all of this infrastructure. On the back of stamps. On the back of stamps. Yes, I know. And uh, it was a different world. And uh, the, he came with what looked like a no-brainer. Uh, uh, money for, 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 for nothing, effectively. Mm. But the money for nothing didn't last for very long. Well, there certainly it seems to have been it seems to have been a backlash. Um, at one point in the '60s, the um, American Philatelic Society, which in the U.S. is the leading uh, association of stamp collectors, they actually started to publish something called the Black Blot List, which was a list of countries and stamps of countries which they thought collectors should be wary of. 
These stamps from the Trucial States became so well known as fake rarities that they earned themselves a nickname, dunes, as in sand dunes. I think the thinking behind that one was that they're just as common as sand dunes are in the Trucial States. Uh, not a great nickname, doesn't make a ton of sense. But it caught on so much that the New York Times wrote an article about it in 1988. They said that Finbar Kenny's stamps are, quote, shunned by buyers and sellers, the product of an extravagant stamp issuing policy, or lack of one. So for most collectors, they're only really interested in stamps that were or could have actually been used as postage stamps, which means that Finbar Kenny's stamps are basically just novelty items. Because they were never used for the purposes of which they, 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 you know, they were never used as postage stamps. Sure, OK. Um, I think that's what I'm asking is, so yes. they have to be... They have to for be, them to be legit in exactly. phila- uh, philately yes. world, they have yes. to be. Yes. They have to actually be functional. Yes. They yes. can't. And there's a recognition that if they're produced for the sake of, like, uh, appeasing collectors, yes. then they are. They have no value. Ah, uh, interesting. To, to, well, to a stamp collector, to yeah. me, they have no value. Yeah. Um, because they, they they were not, for lack of a better word, they were never real. Yeah. Um, real stamps are used, and they're used to transport something. So that was one set of stamps that were issued, and I don't regard them as stamps uh, attached to us, but they're part of our history, and it's, it's a sort of yeah, interesting story. In 1971, the Trucial States became the United Arab Emirates, and they started printing their own stamps. And the illustrations on those ones were much more relevant to the country, so in one, you have a picture of Dubai Airport to commemorate its opening May 15th, 1971, there's another one of Deera Clock Tower. Uh, there are portraits of the leaders from each emirate. But that isn't where the story ends for Finbar Kenny. After the UAE became the UAE, he took his stamp scheme to the Cook Islands in the Pacific. And there he set up a similar scheme to the one he'd been running before. Um, and shortly after that, stamps became the Cook Islands' biggest export, about 20% of government revenue. But then, maybe unsurprisingly, he got wrapped up in a political scam related to voter fraud and eventually dropped off the radar. These days, stamp pandering isn't so much of a thing, but there are a few modern-day schemes that you could say are pretty similar, where countries without steady income streams will hack a popular trend and bank in on their status as a country. One of my favorites is the um, Pacific Island country of Tuvalu. Tuvalu, for a while, they might still do it, I don't know. Um, For a while, they um, sold their rights to their internet domain name, which just happens to be .tv which you can see is very attractive. They, um, when they did this, uh, they got 15% of their gross domestic product from selling the rights. That's not 15% of their tax revenue. That's 15% of their GDP. Well, that was a big chunk of change. Amar doesn't uh, collect stamps anymore, but he still has all of his albums. Um, two shelves of big binders full of plastic sleeves that he's kept since he was a kid. Um, and, and every once in a while, I'll still go back to being, you know, that little kid in Dera who would sit on the floor on the carpet and open the album and look at the stamps yeah. and make sure they're all in the right order, they're facing the right way. Um, because I think, like I said, it's it's commemoration. I um I get the, I I know that you you that your rare stamps are worth a lot of money, but I get the impression it's not no, really about no, that. No, 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 it's not that. I mean, if, if the entire stamp collection put together that I have, it's not worth money. But to me, I can literally close my eyes and be a child again. Mm. I remember 
putting these stamps into the albums as a six-year-old, as a seven-year-old, as an eight-year-old. I remember exchanging a stamp with a friend uh, where I had two of two of it and he didn't have one. And, and I'd, give him one, I'd give him one stamp if he gave me a, 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 and so on. So all of those memories for me are uh, invaluable. Mm. Uh, so yes, they're not worth much in money, but it's like your family photographs. They're worth a lot to you. Kerning Cultures is a production of the Kerning Cultures Network, which means we have lots of other shows in Arabic and English under our umbrella, and ones that I think you'll love. To find out more, search Kerning Cultures Network on your podcast app or visit www.kerningcultures.com. Kerning with a K. Special thanks this episode to Dima Yassin, Tarek Atrisi, John Andrews, Amar Shams, and Joel Slemrod. Joel has a new book out. It's a collection of surprising and funny historical stories about tax. It's called Rebellion, Rascals and Revenue, Tax Follies and Wisdom Throughout the Ages. This episode was written and produced by Alex Atak and Abdi Ahmed and edited by me, Dana Balut. Editorial support from Zana Duwaydad and Nadine Shaked and fact-checking by Percy Everlin. Sound design by Mohamed Khreizat and Alex Atak. We'll be back with a new episode next week. See you then. Take care. Stay safe.